0: A number of years ago, after the Cold War, my brother was working for the Terrorism Task Force for the FBI, and he was sent over to Russia to work uh, with the FBI's counterpart in Russia, which at that time was called the FSB, which was the old, uh, the former um, um, KGB. And he was sent over there to work with them, because they were having a problem tracking down terrorists, uh, Chechnyan terrorists, who were looking to um, purchase uh, Stinger missiles and shoot them at commercial planes. And so my brother went over there, and it was at a time when when Russia was really living backwards. Um, The economy was a mess and corruption. Uh, was just rampant throughout every uh, aspect of society. And so when he went over there, he met with his Russian counterparts, and they traveled together. And one day they were going down the road, and they saw this big motorcade go by them of just these brand-new limousines and... um, Uh, cars in front of uh, the major limousine and cars behind and they pulled into this hotel and and guys came out with guns and um, and when they were all stationary uh, this prominent person all dressed up in a nice suit walked out and walked into the hotel and so my brother turned to a a Russian general that was his counterpart um, from the SSB and he said to him, you know, is that a prominent politician? and he said no half embarrassingly, with a little bit of a smile. That's a Russian mafia. <laughs> um, so they made their way to the hotel uh, to the airport because they were going to fly off to a different part of Russia. and planes were behind and everything was delayed. And so they went to this little restaurant to just uh, sit and wait. And as they were in the restaurant, they saw these two uh, pilots who were sitting at the bar and they were kind of loud. And they were uh, drinking vodka and just one after another. And um, so they were trying to ignore them. And so finally, their their plane got called. And so they they went up uh, to the uh, boarding area to board. But before they could get on, the pilots had to get on. And so the two pilots who were at the bar um, walked off, walked past them. And these were going to be the pilots who were flying the plane. My brother looked at this Russian general horrified and just petrified. And the general looked at him with a half smile and said, Welcome to the new Russia. My brother learned something, uh, I think, in that it's uh, a principle that we all have heard, um, whether we've come to believe it or not. And the principle is this. You can't give what you don't have. You can't give what you don't have. What my brother was looking for was stability in a place that wasn't stable anymore. What my brother was looking for was safety in a place that wasn't safe anymore. Because you can't give what you don't have. That's what we're gonna see this morning as we look at Romans chapter 15. There's a principle in play here and the principle is this, you can't give what you don't have. I mean, we know it in just practical life, right? You can't give patience to a screaming child in the store by screaming at him, right? It doesn't work. Um, You can't, you don't go off and hire an attorney when you know the only bar exam he passed was the pub down the street. you don't listen to the advice of someone who tells you to go out and live your biggest dreams when they're looking at brochures from nursing homes. You can't give people what you don't have. Um, You don't look for advice from people for financial planning when they're in the midst of filing for bankruptcy. You don't go to a dentist who's teeth are crooked or a doctor who meets you at the door with a cigarette hanging out of his mouth because we look at them and we say, no thanks, I'll be fine because we know they want to give us something that they don't have. This is a very important principle and as we look at it fleshed out in this passage, I want you to be thinking about it. I want you to be thinking about What you'd like to give, but you don't have. Maybe you're a parent, and you want your kids to grow up healthy, you want them to grow up morally strong, you want them to grow up with faith, and yet, you know deep down inside, you don't live that way. You want to have a marriage, where your spouse feels loved and your children are proud of their parents and you're proud of who you are as a spouse, and yet you live a selfish life. You live a life where you take from your spouse more than you give. I want you to be just thinking this morning. What is it that you know you should be giving but you don't have. Paul is writing to the Romans, and he's writing at a time in which the the church has had some pretty impressive successes, and yet it's had one big moral failure that is just constant through the New Testament. And the moral failure is, is the failure to get along with other people. The moral, moral failure of the church was the ability to live in unity. When we look at the scriptures, we, we can look at the church in uh, uh, Galatia. It was a church that was just ravaged by legalism, causing one another to correct and to criticize and to hold one above the other. <coughs> when you look at uh, the church in Corinth, It was a church that was divided by uh, two groups who were at odds about what to do with someone who was living incestuously uh, in a relationship. The church in Pergamum was divided by those who were marrying unbelievers and those who were just marrying believers. And, of course, the church in Laodicea, Uh, the church that was so compromised and so stale that Jesus said, you make me sick. Paul was writing his letter to the Romans during a time in which unity throughout the church was totally disunity and dysfunction. Paul's writing uh, to the Romans because they're being torn apart by two groups. The Galatians who have accepted Christ knowing that they are acceptable because of God's grace through faith, plus or minus nothing. And the other group is those Jewish believers who have come to Christ but are still holding on to the rituals, the holy days and other things. And both of them are criticizing one another. The Gentiles are criticizing the Romans because you people are too rigid and you don't know how to live life. And the Romans, are, uh, the, the, the Jews are, are criticizing the Gentiles because you act like a bunch of pagans and the food that you eat that was once sacrificed to idols. I mean, back and forth. And Paul's writing to them, and the principle that he wants them to get is this You can't win other people to Christ if it becomes clear to people. That you can't get along with people. That's the one thing that hurts us in Christianity, right? We tell people, come to Jesus. Because it's so wonderful. Look what it's done for me. And they look at us and they think, no thanks. You're nasty. You're rude. You're self-righteous. You judge people. Or... You talk about Jesus and you talk about honoring God, but you live a life that isn't even close to being holy. The one thing that rips us apart is how we engage with people. So Paul says to these Romans, Look, if you have any desire to win anyone to Christ, you better understand You can't give what you don't have. That's the way life works. And so what he does in these first seven verses, he talks to them again about what it is that they should have. What it is that God would have them to give to others, but first, what has to take place in their own lives. And it's so relevant for us. If you want to know how to live as a believer, Paul says it in these seven verses. If you want to know how to make a difference and impact in the lives of people around you, Paul nails it down in these verses. Let's turn to the passage. Right in the very first part of the first verse, Paul says to us, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak. Paul is saying this. If you're going to make a difference, one of the things that has to be taking place in your life is care for the weak. I can't think of anything that speaks more to love than that. Caring for those people who don't bring anything to the table. Caring for people who are weak in the sense of how they look at God or how they look at Scripture or what, what they have, um, the deficiencies they might present in their person, in the way they dress, the way they speak, the way they act. Paul says this, if you're going to make a difference, then you have to care for the weak. One of, this thing, one of the things that our country has tried to live up to is this value that the strong care for the weak. Uh, that our country has been willing to go to war for other countries who are weaker and who are being oppressed. We haven't always done it right or in the right ways. But it's a good value it's a good value for the strong to care for the weak cuz notice what paul is saying we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak he's not saying that that we ought to just tolerate them he's saying we ought to bear with them what does that mean it means we don't just run around pointing out their mistakes we don't laugh at them when they say something silly When they talk about their relationship with God, but we know, no, what you believe isn't quite right. We don't laugh at it. We don't criticize. We don't mock. We bear with them. Why? Because we want them to know we care. Think about the times in your your lives when you have felt loved, when you have felt cared for by somebody else. Think about it in the context of this. When there are times in your life where you said something that was just dumb or you said something that was inaccurate or you did something and you messed it up and somebody who was either more capable or um, had more influence or was more popular, instead of uh, picking it out and, and belittling you, they actually took the time to come alongside of you and lovingly helped you understand something or helped you fix it, did something that upheld your dignity. That's what Paul is saying. The strong out of care for the weak. Believers who have it together only have it together when they understand. They're called to be understanding, not just tolerance. What does that mean? One, I, I think it means having an attitude that's positive. where We're looking for the good things in people. Where every day we get up and we make that decision. I'm not going to spend my life in complaints. I'm not going to spend my life looking for the flaws. I understand that's life in the cheap seats. That to really live life is to look for life in others and celebrate it. It means to be positive. Positive about ourselves because the truth is you're not going to care for anyone well if you don't care for yourself. And that's not about being narcissistic. It's the understanding that I put value on life, the life that Christ has given me. I value, and I value it in others. It means being positive. It means being forgiving. Let me ask you a question. I want you just think about. You don't have to raise your hands or speak out. How easily do you get offended? Easily. Somewhat easily. Not at all. I watch believers get offended so quickly because we, we try to live this life and we start to believe that we're better at it than others. And so when someone says something or does something that pokes a hole in our belief about ourselves, we get offended. The thing is, if you get offended, you're never going to be able to care for the weak. If you get offended, you're never going to be able to care for the person who might be crude in the way they approach things. Paul says the role of the strongest is, is to care for the weak, which means being positive, not being caught up in the flaws, being willing to forgive, being willing to let things go. Paul says in Romans 12, If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. What does that mean? It means, if it's possible, let it go. As far as it depends on you, let it go. If you're going to spend your life gathering up offenses, you're going to spend a good part of your life in a small area surrounded by fences. That's what happens. Paul says this. If you're going to give to others in the name of Christ, then you better be someone who, in your strength, cares for those who are weak. And even in your strength, is willing to be cared for by those who are stronger. Paul says, number one, caring for the weak. And number two, Paul says... Controlling our will. Look what he says in the rest of the verse. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. That's hard to do. As you've heard me say before, we do what we want to do. If we don't want to do something, we have a hard time doing it. Just in our nature, our motivation, if I don't want to do it, I'll procrastinate, I'll put it off, or I'll just convince myself it's not worth doing. Paul says that the strong ought to control their wills. That the strong ought to be ready to put others first. The the strong had better be willing to sacrifice that others might benefit. How are you at doing what you don't want to do? How, are, how well are you doing the right thing with the right attitude? How willing are you to do something for someone else because it's the right thing to do and not because you're going to gain or benefit in any way. In fact, not only will you not gain a benefit, but you might sacrifice. Someone might say, hey, look, I'm having a graduation party. I'd love you to have you come. It would be so great to have somebody from my church. And you're thinking, I got better things to do on a Saturday. You know, graduations are so long, and, and there's other things I could be doing. Yeah, you could. Somebody could ask for your help. And you could be thinking, you know what? It's been a long weekend. I'm tired. And I just, I don't have the strength to do one more thing. Yeah, maybe you'll sacrifice. Maybe it'll be being with someone you think, I I don't want to go there. It's so boring. But maybe you might find out Boring starts with you. Whatever it is, the willingness to control your will, to be able to say, I'm going to bear with the failings of the week and not please myself. Maybe it's, you know, what it's those times where somebody says something dumb and, and you just got a good one you just want to respond with. You know, you just think, this is too good not to say it. Yeah, it probably isn't nice, but it, this... You just don't want to pass up the opportunity. Maybe it's pointing out something in a way that hopefully they'll get the message they act like an idiot and will stop. And Paul says this, you have to control your will. You have to be willing to bear with the failures of others and even put them ahead of yourself. Why? Because you're not going to be able to love anyone if you can't love everyone. No way, that sounds stupid, doesn't it? You can't love anyone if you don't love everyone. I I don't think so, but Jesus said love your enemies. Think about that. Love your enemies. Why don't you just say like them? I could do like. I could tolerate them. I could be civil to them. All of those work for me. Love them? Put their interest above mine? I said, like I said last week, the whole concept of turn the other cheek, you know, for a long time, I just wanted to believe it meant turn their cheek. You know, No, it meant turn mine. So I could be injured again. See, that's the deal. That's what it means to love. The willingness to sacrifice myself for others, even for those that I feel like I have to stoop down to. Because you want to know what grace is? Grace is when God stooped down and touched our lives in Christ. I mean, think about it. That Jesus took on the likeness of a human being and he allowed himself to be humiliated because God was willing to stoop down to you, who looked totally ridiculous and acted totally selfish. How do you give what you don't have? Well, first, it's looking at obtaining it, looking at caring for the weak. Controlling your will. Number three, conforming to Christ. Each of us should please our neighbors. Next for, For their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insulted you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us. You know, years ago, everyone had those corny little wristbands. What would Jesus do? They were a good idea. In fact, they were a great idea. Because most of us don't wake up every morning thinking, what would Jesus do? God didn't just give us a bunch of rules, a bunch of new commandments. God did something incredible. He gave us his son who walked this earth and basically said to us, walk this way. As you walk this earth, this is the way you should walk. This is the way you should act. Why do we love Jesus? Because when we look at his life, We see a guy who was a blessing to the oppressed. We see a a, a, a man who was there for uh, the wicked, uh, who was there for the widow, who was there for the cripple and the sick. We see a person who was willing to weep for the dead. And a person who was willing to die for the awful. Why should I care for the weak? Why should I control my will? Because that's what Jesus did. If I want to have something to give to others, as a spouse, as a parent, as a friend, then I better know how to care for the weak. And I better know how to control my will And I better be looking to comply and to become like Christ. I better be willing to submit my life to be part of his. I know that it's, it's... easy for us to say i'm not jesus in fact that, that it's always a good one to use isn't it well I, you know that's fine but i'm not jesus I, I, you know look i'll be holy but i'm not jesus i'm not god but jesus called us to be like him there aren't any outs for us jesus called us to draw near Not only to him, but to each other. If you're going to be like him, you have to love what he loves. And he loves people. And he calls you and he commands you to love people. Number four. Commitment to the scriptures. Paul says... What was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide we might have hope. Why are the scriptures such a big deal? Paul lays it out here. The scriptures teach you endurance. It's easy to get run down. It's easy to lose perspective. I lose perspective every day. Every day, I lose perspective of what's real. I work with people who, some of them, leave reality. They're psychotic. But the truth is, very few of us live in reality. Very few of us live in that place of reality before God because we lose perspective on what's real. What do the scriptures do? By being in the scriptures, it helps to help me know what's real so I can endure. Conforming, being committed to the scriptures helps to keep me in a place of reality so that I can give truth to others because I know what the truth is. How many of you have gone quiet in your workplace or in your school when somebody's talked about abortion or the big one homosexuality or uh, premarital sex or living together or all of the other ones you've gone quiet, quiet because I know it's wrong I just don't I don't know why or I know the Bible says something about it, but I don't really know what the Bible says. And so your ability to endure, your ability to be able to engage with the culture doesn't go very far. The scriptures help give you endurance. Number two, Paul says, the scripture helps give you encouragement. The scripture reminds you that no matter what is happening, God is in control. The scriptures give you thousands of promises that God has made to his people and God is not slack on his promises. God isn't someone who breaks his word. Yeah, but there are times that that we will suffer and yet God gives us the endurance through his word and the encouragement of what is to come. You can't give. Christ to people if you don't know the Scriptures because you won't know Christ it gives endurance the Scriptures give encouragement Paul says it gives hope hope that there's something worth hoping in hope that there's something worth enduring for hope that there's something worth being encouraged about When you read the scriptures during tough times, do you feel better or do you feel worse? Yeah, we feel worse if we're convicted on something that we're not going to change. But we feel better when we're looking for light, when we're looking for guidance, when we're looking for those promises that that say to us, just keep doing the next right thing. Number five, Paul says, Confidence in God. Look at verse 5 with me. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind towards each other that, Jesus, that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and with one voice you may glorify God. Gives us confidence to do what? To trust God. This endurance... It comes from God. This encouragement, it comes from God. The scriptures testify, but it comes from God. The hope we have comes from him. So the question is, what are you going to do with it? It's real easy, isn't it? To say, yeah, God, I want to trust in you, but you don't seem to care about my deal over here. God, I want, I want to trust in you, but you don't seem to be going in the direction I want to go in. God, I I trust you, but I don't think you get it. Instead of saying, God, I trust you. And no matter what happens, you're good and you're God. And if I'm wrong, I'm wrong. But I will trust you. You can't say to people, have faith while you're running in the opposite direction of faith. I was uh, talking to someone, and and they were telling me about how they were contemplating taking the next two months off from work, staying home and hunkering down in their homes to make sure they don't get the coronavirus. What is that about? Are, Are we so fickle and so fearful That that somehow God left town? That God heard about the virus and said, well, I better step out of the universe. I don't want to get that. People act silly. Number one, you are going to die. Whether it's the coronavirus or a truck coming around the corner, sooner or later, your number's up. Don't live in fear. Live in faith. Understand, the Bible makes it good, God numbers your days. Yeah, we can determine the quality of those days by the way that we take care of ourselves, but I cannot determine the quantity. I would rather be out with God's people seeking to share the good news, to be engaged in people's lives, to be touching, shaking hands with people, and go that way than being found dead in some bunker because I ran out of water. I mean, it's just craziness. You can't give what you don't have. You can't tell people to believe in Christ, to trust God, if you spend your life living in fear. I I would not want to go that way. Whatever it is out there that could kill me, I'd rather go trusting God than living like a coward. Lastly, consigning glory to God. Paul says, with one mind and one voice, may you glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. If you're going to give anything that is worth giving, that is life-saving, then your life has got to be pointed to the glory of God. What does that mean? It means I want people to see the presence of God in what He does in me as I act and speak on His behalf. I don't want them to see me. I don't want me to get something out of a transaction. I don't want my great rewards of life uh, to finally be uh, saving for that big expensive nursing home or uh, living off of a fat... I want my life to be leading to the glory of God. I want it to be well-lived For that purpose and that purpose only. Because everything else is fleeting. Whatever you think matters, if the glory of God isn't ahead of it, then what you believe matters really doesn't matter and will bring you great hurt and disappointment in your life. It just will. So how do I give what I have I do it knowing that I've got to have care for the weak. I've got to control my will. I have to conform to the image of Christ. I have to be committed to the scriptures. I have to trust God. I have to look To being about bringing his glory. If those things are in play in my life, then when I speak and act, I can do so knowing that I have something to give. I have faith in God, I have trust in the scriptures, I have love for the weak. I'm willing to not think less of myself, but to think of myself less and live in humility. I'm willing to sacrifice that others might find satisfaction in Christ. So let me ask you. In fact, right now, close your eyes. Oh, come on, half of you were heading closed anyways. God bless you, Donald. All right, so what is it in your life that others might need that right now you know you don't have it to give? maybe you want to speak to something moral in someone's life but you know morally your life is a mess right now maybe you want to speak to somebody's finances because they're always in debt and they they just are a mess and yet you know your finances are a wreck maybe you want to say to someone look stop being so anxious about everything. Stop being so fearful. And you know it doesn't take much to trigger you. And you're running around as if there isn't even a God. Maybe you deeply desire to share the gospel, but you won't do the work of studying the scriptures. What is it that you don't have right now? That you desperately need if you're going to give it to other people. This matters. You don't have to love to give. But you have to give to love. And you can't give what you don't have. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, we pray that what we say and what we do and what we give would come from the overflow and not the undertow of our lives. That it would come from the reality of what we know and what we live and not from some convoluted unauthentic life that we're trying to copy from somebody else. Father, help us in our strength to truly be strong by caring for those who are weak, by not compromising, but not criticizing. Help us, Lord God, to not look to see our own needs come to pass. But to put those needs aside that we might help those who need help. Help us, Lord God, each day to focus on becoming more like Christ and less like ourselves. Help us, Lord God, to know your word that we might know Christ. That our spirits would be connected to the spirit of Christ in the word. Help us to trust you with everything. And to know that when it seems that what we care about isn't what you care about, to relook at what we care about. And help us, Father, to find the only true glory there is, the glory of lifting lifting up the name of Jesus Christ, seeing light enter darkness, and seeing hope make fear run away. Lord God, help us to live in reality so that we will really truly have something to give to others who desperately need it. We pray this in the glorious name of your son, Jesus Christ.